Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. In 1885, the French Catholic Church celebrated a spectacular propaganda coup. One of its fiercest critics, the anti-clerical writer Léo Taxil, had at last seen the light and was eager to tell the world about his conversion. Above all, Taxil was determined to expose the grotesque and hateful network to which he had belonged since his teens, the diabolical world of Freemasonry. The great architect of the Masons, Taxil announced was the devil. Their lodges housed statues of goat-headed beasts. Their rituals involved bestial forms of carnality and prostitution, last seen in ancient Babylon. The worst masons of all were the new reformed Palladians, led by a devil-worshipping lesbian called Sister Sophia Sappho. In public, Sophia Sappho seemed a genteel spinster. But in private... She would writhe with passion as she spat on a consecrated host before forcing a newly initiated sister to have sex with the sacramental bread stuffed up her vagina. Published in a series of best-selling books, Taxil's revelations transfixed France. He was invited to an audience with Pope Leo XIII, who told him that he had read every word. And then, after 12 years of headlines, Taxil called a public meeting at the Geographical Society in Paris and revealed the truth. So Dominic, as you will well know, um, that's a review by a top critic <laughs> of the book, The Craft, How the Freemasons Made the Modern World by John Dickey, yes. who is professor of Italian studies at University College London. And that top critic was yourself. Yes. So that is the ultimate Sunday Times review opening. So that's the kind of thing that the literary editor of the day loved. He always used to say, "Loads of loads of sex, please." Well, I and mean, so uh, what I found when I came across this in this wonderful book. It's one of those books, actually, The, the Craft, um, it's called. And it's one of those books where, as you read it, the scales kind of fall from your eyes. Because I had always been interested in the who were the Freemasons? You know, where do they come from? What do they believe? Is that, Dominic, because you, 
you yourself are a Freemason? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm absolutely not, Tom. But as you are now going to say, of course, I would say that, uh, wouldn't I, if I was part of this diabolical conspiracy? As we will see, the truth that Taxil reveals is 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 surprising, shall we say. So, so are we going to reveal the truth now? Or I think should we get... Um, well, should we get the author of the book that you reviewed, who is, uh, has very kindly agreed to come on the show and talk about Freemasons, should we get him to tell us what the truth is? I was? suspect we should. So, John <laughs> Dickey, thank you so much for joining us. A wonderful book. Now, come on. Leo Taxil. Uh, was he telling the truth about uh, Sister Sophia Sappho and the new reformed Palladians and the devil or not? Well, it's great to be here. And I'm tempted to suggest that people read the book to find out, but perhaps I'm not giving away too much by saying it was actually a gigantic hoax. I mean, one of the biggest hoaxes in modern history that had certainly had large parts of the Catholic Church uh, fooled uh, and lasted 12 years and tells us a lot about uh, this still uh, ongoing paranoia that the Catholic Church has about Freemasonry. But there'll be lots of people listening to this who will say, okay, fine, well, it wasn't, you know, okay, maybe the Freemasons aren't devil-worshipping lesbians, but there are still all kinds of mysterious things. It's a network that, you know, has in, people of our generation always talk about the police in Britain, that it's infiltrated this institution, that institution. So when you come to write about it as a historian, to what extent were you yourself, you know, how much of that did you have in your head? Because you've written about the mafia before, haven't you? So you're very good on shadowy, sinister organisations. Yeah, I came to it through the mafia, really, because I'd been on uh, radio a lot, TV a lot, talking about the mafia. And I defined, when asked to define the mafia, I did exactly the way Sicilian mafiosi do. And I said, well, it's like a Freemasonry for criminals. And I got a message from the head of communications at the United Grand Lodge of England at the end of the day saying, would you like to come in for a chat because our members are up in arms? So I went along and had a chat with them and, and did the tour of the museum. And based on what I uh, already kind of knew about uh, Freemasonry in the Italian context particularly, I realized there was a big story there because... Um, there are really only two narratives out there about the Freemasons. One is the sort of either it's a conspiracy theory or it's a sort of grubby cabal, the kind of story we grew up with, you know. Or on the the other story that you have out there is the Freemasons version, which is it's all a noble and misunderstood tradition of brotherhood and charity work and that sort of thing. Um, and both of those stories have some elements of truth in them, depending in, you know, on where you go in history and, you know, where you go across the world, because Freemasonry is a global phenomenon. But there's an awful lot in the middle um, that neither of those stories captured. Uh, and that is huge fun. I mean, I've never had so much fun writing a book as I did uh, writing this one. But John, the other mystery that I've always kind of been aware of and never, until I read your book, probably got a handle on, is the origins. Because the origin story, the Freemasons themselves say, I mean, it goes back to the time of Solomon and Masons building the the, the temple in Jerusalem, um, and somehow the Templars fit in and they worship a head of a demon called Baphomet, and somehow the Illuminati are there as well. And that great swirl of historically themed conspiracy theories, the Freemasons seem to be sat right in the middle of it. 
And I'm guessing that that in part, the kind of the secrecy of that is, I mean, it's a huge part of the fun for the Freemasons. But also, what is, what is the, the actual history of how the Freemasons came to being? Presumably, it doesn't go back to the Middle Ages, let alone back to the time of Solomon. No. I mean, you really need to look at two uh, moments that were the key moments in the development of Freemasonry. One was the court of James VI of Scotland, the future James I of England, uh, at the very end of the 16th century, when you had um, a, a sort of law, L-O-R-E, of uh, stonemasons. Stonemasons had created their own sort of corporate mythology, if you like, that included all of these things like Euclid and Solomon's Temple and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and in a very interesting political move, uh, a man called William Shaw, S-C-H-A-W, who was James I's um, basically Minister of Works, Minister of Public Works, made a kind of alliance with these senior stonemasons who were building things like, uh, you know, James's chap- new chapel at Stirling Castle, um, and introduced them, it seems, to certain versions of Renaissance philosophy, classical philosophy, and particularly the art of memory, which I'm sure you know all about. The idea that, you know, you, you, you memorize a speech by... Uh, visualizing going through a whole building with various things like yeah, a, a memory interesting palace. floor, memory palace, or a columns here and pictures there and that kind of thing. And in the Renaissance, the Renaissance philosophy of Hermeticism, that became a sort of portal to the secrets of the universe. And William Shaw introduced um, the these stonemasons to this mythology to this, sorry, this Renaissance philosophy as a sort of flattering overture, if you like, and uh, promised to help them organize themselves. And that suited their sort of, they had to to become a stonemason, you had to memorize quite a lot in terms of the mythology and so on and so forth. It helped them organize their initiation rituals. It gave, it turned the cells of their organization that they called lodges into theaters of memory. And if you go to a Masonic lodge today, a Masonic temple, you will see a chessboard floor, you will see columns and globes and various symbols moving around that are uh, a memoir, mnemonics, to help you negotiate your way through the long and complicated rituals. And the, the, the new and exciting idea was that this had a kind of philosophical content, that this was giving you access to some kind of truth, whether it be an ethical truth or a philosophical truth. Uh, all sorts of different kinds of truth have been superimposed on that. So that's the one moment. And at that moment, it becomes fashionable. Gentlemen start to join these lodges of stonemasons in search of fashionable intellectual concerns of the age. And it spreads around the country, albeit in very sort of small low-key forms. And, and by country, you mean Britain or just Scotland? It enters England. I mean, one of the main vehicles seems to have been uh, Scottish forces involved in the Civil War, the Civil Wars. 
And it's by the beginning of the 18th century, it's kind of national, um, but rather uncoordinated, it seems. And then we get the second big moment, which is in 1717, when a group of four lodges come together to found what's called a Grand Lodge, a sort of supervisory body uh, to enforce the rules, if, if you were, and, you know, and decide who is legitimately a Freemason and who isn't. At this time, they're beginning to call themselves Freemasons. And a Freemason is someone who works freely with stone rather than kind of um, slavishly cutting. Is that right? That's the origins of the word. Um, but it has many meanings in the sources. It keeps its original uh, meaning, which is the guy who, you know, elaborately shapes the stone and then hands it over to a guy to just bung it in a wall or a, you know, church or a whatever. Um, but I think the connotations of freedom and so on um were helpful in its becoming the name for the Freemasons because by the beginning of the 18th century, um, Freemasonry has separated it off from any real concrete. In fact, that, that foundation of the Grand Lodge in 1717 seems to have been a key moment in that process, separated itself off from any of that stonemasonry stuff. And the, the accoutrements of the stonemason, the gloves, the apron, the set squares, the, you know, the lead weight things, you know, all of those sorts of tools stop being tools of stonemasons and just become part of the metaphorical kit of these rituals, of these Masonic rituals. So, John, they meet at the Goose and Gridiron pub. It's in 1717, don't they, to hammer it out? And, and Tom and I were discussing this beforehand. I said to him that it's a bit like the the foundation of the, the Football Association, hammering out common rules. And Tom said, well, it's actually it's 18th century, so it's more like the rules of cricket. But there is a sense of that, isn't there? That there is a sort of, you know, you were talking about gentlemen earlier, that these are actually quite well-born, well-educated, well-off people who are coming together to create the rules of a, it's not quite a game, but it's a kind of ritual, isn't it? And they do regard it. I think one of the things that comes through from your book is they regard it as fun from the beginning, that there's, that's an important part of it. It's a kind of, that sort of brotherhood element is actually quite jolly rather than sinister. Yeah, absolutely. It's part of that 18th century world of clubs and, uh, and all of that sort of thing. Very, very much part of that. In a way, the most successful and long lasting part of that and and you know the comparison with sort of cricket or whatever also stands up in the sense that you know through the empire it's then spread round the globe once particularly once you've got a rule book set up in 1723 yeah boozing and uh <laughs> drinking and so on has always been an absolutely key part of freemasonry also the lack of women is also another very distinctive 18th century club aspect yeah, that's right. I mean, the Masons have always been quite rightly, I think, given a hard time for this. But that rule book from 1723, the, the Anderson's Constitutions, as it's known, the Constitutions of the Freemasons, is the first to actually officially say, look, you can't have any women, can't have any slaves, can't have any, you know, whatever. Um, and that's created a lot of problem that, you know, as you'll know from the book, there's, there are versions of Freemasonry that have incorporated women in various forms 
right up to kind of full equal membership mixed lodges. But the norm is still, I think, very, you know, male. It's a, it, this is a book, as I said, about male eccentricity and, and a history. Although you do introduce someone who may have been female or, or maybe not, who is the Chevalier Deon who is, I guess, representative of the spread of Freemasonry from England across the Channel. And the Chevalier Deon is either a man who dresses as a woman or a woman who dresses as a woman but pretends to be a man and somehow become a Mason. Yeah, no, it created obviously great hilarity. The Masons, have, all, as well as having a good time themselves, have always uh, provoked enormous laughs uh, among everybody else because of their strange, you know, rolling their trouser legs up and, and bearing their chests and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, one a major course of hilarity during the 18th century was this story of the Chevalier Dion, who was a, a, basically a French spy, a French government agent, and kind of scandalist, who ended up joining a lodge in London. Um, and for whatever reasons, again, the story is complicated and it depends who you believe, started dressing as a woman uh, and actually claiming to be a woman um, and eventually would be welcomed into the bosom of Freemasonry back in... As it were. Uh, in <laughs> France. <laughs> yes, uh, where they did allow... Uh, they did allow, they did have a form of female Freemasonry at the time, the so-called adoption lodges. But in the meantime, created a great deal. There was a huge betting market opened about whether the Chevalier d'Or really was or wasn't a woman. Uh, and eventually, I think probably because of bribery, somebody was, um, a witness came up and said, well, I actually had sex with the Chevalier d'Or and she's definitely a woman. And yeah, the truth wouldn't be, uh, uh, revealed until she, he died, uh, and we found out that uh, he, she was am- anatomically male. Wow. So I'll tell you what, a strange thing that I had never realized before reading your book was that Freemasonry is linked to Whiggery. So there's loads of Whigs. It's sort of the Robert Walpole era. So is it a sort of political patronage group at this stage? Well, kind of everything is in, <laughs> in, in the 18th century. But yes, I mean, they absolutely, particularly because of the secrecy code they've got, which I think we probably need to get into at some stage, um, they need the protection of the Whig elite. What I think happened, and it's still, you know, Opinions are divided among historians. What I think happened with the setting up of that Grand Lodge was that was effectively a kind of Whig coup within Freemasonry. And they elbowed out the Tories who'd previously been in charge, you know, the, the, the fate of Christopher Wren, who had uh, been in many, it seems to have been a kind of figurehead of free, the exception, as the Freemason, as Freemasonry was called, kind of in London before. Because he was an architect. I mean, he was literally building temples. Well, yes, and- absolutely. Uh, yeah, and all of, of, you know, many, many of the builders, uh, the contractors and people that he used in building St. Paul's and uh, all the other churches were Freemasons, were members of this thing called the Exceptions, as was Christopher N's son, uh, and so on and so forth. And I think what happens in the, you know, transition into the Whig regime is that they kind of want to move on from that Tory version of Freemasonry and create a new version. 
And so does that that association of of Freemasonry with kind of Whiggish principles of um, liberty and freedom and enlightenment thought, does that explain its success on the continent where there's this kind of Anglomania, this this fascination with England as, you know, Voltaire comes here and says that it's the great home of liberty. Is that that part of what explains its success? Definitely. I think so. You know, Freemasonry is a kind of vehicle of um, enlightenment values again and again. And it's not just in, you know, when it's first exported to France uh, that people see it in, see it as something modern. But again and again, you know, we see it in, in the early Republic in the United States or in the early movement for Indian independence. It seems to be a, offer itself as a very good school of modern politics and of, of uh, the, the kind of skills and values that you need to take part in a modern state. So all that sort of supreme being stuff and all the quite vague, well, the simultaneously very detailed but also kind of vague religious stuff, my sense is that that's a product of the Enlightenment and it's designed for an age where they don't want sectarian passions to to sort of you know people are arguing all the time about high and low church and catholic and protestant and stuff and this is a good way of smoothing that over but it's also it is very whiggish and very enlightened and very mid century you can absolutely see where it appealed to the founding fathers of the united states for example can't you yeah no that's absolutely right you know we, we better come on to the secrets am i allowed to say the secrets online yeah I'm too, <laughs> i can I'm see you itching to tell to us that. okay because that, you know <laughs> freemasons free swear uh the most terrifying oaths during their rituals to maintain the secrets of Freemasonry. Do we know what these oaths are? Because presumably they have to keep them secret. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, you can feed them online. You know, Yes, you've got to keep them secret, and it all happens in a secret place, and it's all hidden by symbols and stuff like that. But once you strip all of the, you know, the kind of funny walks and oaths and all that out of the way. I love the the, the quote you give of, um, what was it, Custos, um, a Portuguese. Was he Portuguese? I can't remember. He was... London-based, but he was a Huguenot. Yes, who gets kind of um, abducted by the Inquisition in Portugal and tortured and confesses to all kinds of stuff and then comes back. And he, he think that that basically the secrecy is is just a way of getting people to join. As secrecy naturally excited curiosity, this prompted great numbers of persons to enter into this society. So the secrecy is basically a marketing tool. It, it, among other things, it's a very good marketing tool. But the secrets, once, you know, you get three main rituals to really begin your career as a Freemason, the entered apprentice, the fellow craft, and the master mason ritual. Once you've been through those, you are a Freemason in the full sense of the word. And each one of those has this terrifying secret that you're supposed to learn. And the first one that you learn in the Entered Apprentice, you know, after all of this palaver of blindfolding and swords pointed at your breasts and all of this kind of stuff, is that you've got to be a nice chap. <laughs> and the, oh. second, the second secret at the end of the fellow craft uh, ritual, again, lots of palaver, is that it's a good idea to find out more about the world 
And the third secret, you can tell I'm not a Freemason, of course, because I... Of course you would say this. Yeah, of course you would. Yeah, we're not falling for that. (laughs) It's probably as good a proof as you're going to get if if somebody gives away the secrets like this. Uh, But you can find them on the internet anywhere you want. Anyway, and the third secret after the Master Mason ritual, which is an extraordinary bit of theatre, you know, you're, you're sort of ritually beaten to death by other Freemasons and then sort of zipped into a body bag and carried around the the lodge building and then symbolically revived by this sort of Masonic man hug. And uh, the secret you learn at the end of all of this is that death is quite a serious business and it kind of makes you think a bit. Um, <laughs> so, um, those, in other words, the secrets are just towering, towering banalities. And what it, what it, that tells us a number of things. One is that's quite ingenious. Rather than making some terrifying political or theological secret, the truth, the, the secret, they're making it a, this kind of empty form of secrecy, which is open to everybody. Nobody can disagree with these, whatever religious faith you are and so on and so forth. So they're a vehicle of tolerance. But what they do do is borrow the whole kind of aura of secrecy and mystery of secrecy to create a certain sort of quasi-religious feeling around the rituals and around uh, Freemasonry and a sense of sacredness around their rituals while not treading on anybody's toes. And is that why it's so popular with the Founding Fathers who like that kind of watered-down, deist kind of approach to things, do you think? Yes, exactly. I mean, it works very well for them. There were Freemasons on both sides in the American War of Independence. You know, the military is full of Freemasons on both sides. But it's really once they set about, you know, setting up the rules of the Republic and Washington's in place, that Washington particularly, who was a Freemason, sees, well, look, this is a really, we haven't got religion to legitimate what we're doing. And all the lessons of history are that republics don't work. We know that, you know, wherever you are, particularly in classical history, republic, it's going to collapse into anarchy or or tyranny sooner or later. So what we need is something to give us a sense of sacredness without having any particular religious kind of input without offending anybody and the freemasons are perfectly fitted for that task so that's why washington is very public about his freemasonry when he's president um and why he for example uh, in the laying of the cornerstone of the capitol building in washington it's a ceremony i kind of reconstruct in the book you know this is you know washington he knows this city is going to carry his name he knows that it's going to have a big statue of him at the centre. And, you know, it's, it, at the moment, it's just a plan drawn out in the mud on the banks of the, uh, of the Potomac. And yet he makes, uses a Masonic ceremony. And the Masons are very good at ceremonies and rituals and all that stuff to give this sense of sacredness. Here we're founding something really important. And, you know, when reports of that, reach around the country, it really sets off uh, the this fashion for Freemasonry and for Masonic um, cornerstone-laying ceremonies in the early American Republic. And what about the dollar bill? So that's something that comes up 
online, if you spend any time on social media, that kind of thing comes up again and again that, you know, it's part of a globalist conspiracy and has been from the beginning. The eye, what is it? The eye of providence or whatever yeah. it's called. I can't remember what it's called. You know, the, the pyramid, all that stuff. Is there genuine sort of Masonic influence going on there? Yeah. What better evidence do you need of a global conspiracy than the fact they're advertising it on the dollar bill? <laughs> the, no, the, that didn't, uh, it, it was originally that symbol, the pyramid with the all seeing eye, uh, was at some point the obverse of the seal of state. Uh, and that was, I forget, in the 1780s sometime. That was, uh, early 1790s was kind of, uh, put in place. But at the time, it wasn't a Masonic symbol. And as far as we know, none of the people who designed it were Freemasons. No, it gets incorporated onto the dollar bill under FDR in the 30s. And FDR, when this design, you know, using this new design for the dollar was proposed, which, you know, resurrected, if you like, this uh, obverse of the seal of state as as part of the the design of the dollar bill was he was a freemason he was a 32nd degree freemason but he was actually really worried that that would kind of offend his catholic base because by this time the freemasons who have been hoovering up symbols left right and center nothing masons like more than than symbols and they will get them from anywhere um hence the confusion about their origins because the, the templars you know, ancient Egypt, it's all good. It all makes for good ceremonies. So he wanted to actually check that uh, his Catholic base wouldn't be offended if he put a sort of what some might interpret as a Masonic symbol on the uh, on the dollar bill, and he was reassured. Unfortunately, he wasn't to know about the conspiracy theories that would grow up around it much later. Well, so talking of conspiracy theories and uh, Catholic dislike of um, Freemasonry, uh, which we opened the episode with, um, we should come to that, I think, in the second half, look at the role that Freemasonry is supposed to have played in the French Revolution and the role it definitely plays in kind of polarizing Catholic and secular opinion in France in the 19th century. So we will come back and talk about that after the break. Do you know, Dominic, I was going to try and do the uh, aria of the Queen of the Night yes. um, from Mozart's opera, The Magic Flute, which uh, I gather, John, maybe you could confirm this supposition, is about a Masonic rituals. It's kind of Mozart's version of the rituals that you go through. Anyway, my voice isn't up to singing the aria of the Queen of the Night. But If any of our listeners, by the way, want to excerpt that, <laughs> put it as a little clip on social media. I'm not going to stop them. Uh, yeah, my reading of that is that basically Mozart was like his mate Haydn was a was a Freemason, um, and he uh, definitely Freemasonry influenced the Magic Flute. But being a good Freemason, he wasn't going to give away the Masonic secret. So what he produces is a sort of very strong, very recognisable Masonic flavour, while giving him sort of a bit of deniability about it. Just before we come to the French Revolution, which I know Tom um, said we were going to talk about uh, just before the break, for all those people, George Washington, Mozart, all these people in the 18th century, am I right in thinking that for them, joining the Masons is, you know, it's fun, there's the rituals, it's open to everybody, it's tolerant, it's kind of enlightened. It, it, it's a bit like joining a private members club today if you're a kind of hipster. 
Is it? Is there a bit of truth in that, that it's kind of cool and you meet lots of interesting people, but there's no great, you know, it's, there's no metaphysical importance to you necessarily. It's not an existential thing to be a Mason, or am I well, underplaying it? Um, I think you are underplaying it a little bit. I mean, you have to remember that people join Freemasonry for lots of different reasons, and it means different things to different people. You know, in the same way that the secrets are a kind of empty centre that then lead people to imagine and project all sorts of things onto them, whether they're Masons or non-Masons. The, you know, there are different ways of living out your Freemasonry. Certainly in the 18th century, you know, it felt very modern and uh, temporary. It's also about status. You know, there's lots of badges and, and stages to go through. And, you know, as Freemasonry went on, they invented, you know, they didn't just have, there were just two degrees when Freemasonry started off. Then they added another one. And then this growth became kind of exponential. And that, because people love the badges of status, the kind of the ceremony, they're all, all, you know, the sense of belonging. So it's, you get status that is not the same as the status you would have in the outside world, but is a kind of refracted version of it. And, the, you know, so it's, there's all sorts of aspects. But in cases, kind of erases status, doesn't it? Because the gloves that Masons wear are designed to ensure that you can't know whether you're shaking the hand of a duke or a dustman, I read in your book. Yeah, that's, that, that's, what, that's the conventional explanation within Freemasonry. Certainly, there's a sort of utopian... Uh, egalitarian vibe, the idea of brotherhood. Yeah. You know, if I'm an ordinary member of a lodge, and so is, you know, the Duke of Kent, in theory, we are just brothers. You know, we are equal, formally equal. And that's, that's very exciting. That sort of temporary suspension of the rules right. of the outside world. So liberty, equality, and fraternity. And so you could, I guess, see why in 1797, a Catholic abbe um, wrote about the revolution that everything in the French Revolution, everything right down to the most appalling deeds, was foreseen, premeditated, arranged, resolved upon, and decided. Everything was caused by the deepest wickedness because everything was prepared and directed by men who alone held the thread uniting the intrigues that had long been woven within the secret society. So the idea that these principles that the French Revolution flaunt are actually deriving from Freemasonry and it's all a, a, a kind of scam and is a veil covering what is in fact deep wickedness. And this is a Catholic theme that runs right the way through the 19th century. And it's what um, Leo Taxil is basically exploiting. Yes, absolutely right. I mean, we owe the birth of the conspiracy theory in its modern form. You know, the idea of the secret elite behind the scenes controlling everything, that fantasy we owe to Catholic fear of Freemasonry, you know, that the idea that somehow uh, it's just a front, that there's some demonic purpose behind it, that fear, uh, which is systematized, as you said, by the uh, this guy, the Abbe Barwell, who's, you know, sitting in his house on the Edgware Road in London in exile from, from the French Revolution, trying to make sense of the consternation caused by the French Revolution, the overthrowing of throne and altar, it's got to be a conspiracy. Somebody's got to be to blame, and it's got to be the Freemasons, who the Pope had excommunicated as long ago as 1738. And that idea becomes very, very contagious, and the Freemasons are perfect for it, 
because they've got this sort of Russian doll. Firstly, they've got their code of secrecy, you know, and they may well say, oh, no, honestly, there's really nothing to it. They would say that, wouldn't they? And then even their structure lends itself to this, this Russian doll thing of, you know, ever higher degrees. And, and the myth that was created was that this was all kind of machinery for depriving people of their free will until they became sort of Satanist robots by the time <laughs> yeah. they, yeah. they got to the high, everyone. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, by the, by the time of the higher degrees. And it was all aimed at, you know, overthrowing throne and altar, bringing about exactly what happened, you know, under the Jacobins. But there's a tiny degree of... So in the first half, we were talking about how Freemasonry was identified with Whiggery, with Enlightenment principles, with tolerance, with free thinking, with brotherhood, erasing distinctions, you know, underneath the gloves, whatever... So when the Abbe Baruel says, oh, well, this is all a, a result of Freemasonry, there's a pitiful, minuscule little germ of, of sense there, is there? Or Yeah, I think so. I mean, even if uh, you take Freemasonry at face value, you know, for what it is in the 18th century, it's, it looks deeply, deeply dodgy. You know, it's, it's a centre of aggregation, away from the court, away from, you know, a philosophy, free thinking. Um, so, it, you know, it's subversive and heretical. Uh, and therefore, even in its the most innocent interpretation, interpretation of it for the church is, is positively dangerous. Does the Catholic Church have a sense of it as being from Britain, being, in that sense, Protestant or not? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it, it's also... Um, it, it would soon become associated with uh, Judaism and all sorts of, uh, you know, anything and everything that they didn't like. I think primarily for them it's heretical because when what happens is the Freemason, and it, and it has its roots in all of the most ancient heresies, you know, the Manichaeans and all of these people. So, so basically they're buying into what the, the, the Freemasons are saying. I mean, are they exactly. thinking that it comes from, from Babylon and from... Yeah. That's exactly it. The Templars or whatever, you know, uh, who's we, as we all know, ended up rather badly. The, that's the point. The Freemasons have gone round during the 18th century, assembling these vast sort of museum of symbols, display cases of symbols that they can use to say, you know, to show that they're very ancient and they go back to the Old Testament or whatever it is, and that they've given them all these symbols for the sort of mise-en-scene of their ritual performances. And all the the Abbe Baruel and those who, who followed him had to do would say, well, Manichaean is clearly, you know, heresy. You know, the Templars, good grief, devil worshippers, Baphomet. So they, they take the, the, the irony of this, of course, they take the Masons' version of their own history at face value and just, you know. Yeah, because we did, we did some uh, various episodes on the Cathars and how essentially the, the notion of Catharism was invented in the 19th century by nervous Catholic writers and I guess that this is all part of that swirl and mix. But meanwhile, um, while all this uh, palaver is going on in France, in the British Empire, it seems to be does seem to be playing a role slightly analogous to cricket. So we mentioned this before <laughs> that it is being taken out, say, to India, and just as Indians start to to play cricket, and it becomes a game where Indians and British can can meet on the playing field. So 
in India, the whole idea of brotherhood and the erasure of race and, and religion and things like that means that they, these lodges become places where British and Indians can meet and become Masons. Is that right? Meet on the level in Masonic jargon. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the Freemasonry does so much work for the British Empire. Um, for a start, it's a kind of welfare system for imperialists and a social network. You can be, if you're an imperialist soldier, particularly, or a sailor, or if you're, uh, you know, a bureaucrat or a merchant, whatever it is, you can find a kind of home for, from home, the familiar, uh, you can find a welcome. Your Masonic credentials are your passport to a world of mutual support and a social life and a bit of fun and so on and so forth. So the, that is very important. But then you're absolutely right. There is this element of kind of allowing the native elites a bit of conditioned access. You know, you can check them beforehand, check they're okay. But particularly if they're politically useful, like, you know, whatever various uh, members of the uh, Indian elite are, you can bring them on board and flatter them and, you know, uh, flatter them with this sort of formalized equality uh, that you get on the playing field or or indeed in the Masonic Lodge. You have this brilliant stat, um, and I'm quoting from your, your wonderful book, by the outbreak of the First World War, there were at least 10 brothers in India who put Maharaja in the occupation column of the Lodge Register. So, mm. And Kipling said the man who would be king starts with a, there's a whole section about masonry there, isn't there? Brother this, brother that. They're all kind of shaking hands and giving each other the wink and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the two rascals are at the centre of the man who would be king, kind of are Freemasons and use Masonic rituals to create a bit of woo-woo kind of authority around their, their <laughs> reign. And Kip Kipling, of course, you know, arch-imperialist and the great poet and writer uh, of imperial freemasonry and the hatred going back to the tom's point about the hatred the anti-masonic conspiracy theories i mean they are extraordinarily long-lived within in catholic societies aren't they so i mean one thing that i find i've always found absolutely mystifying is that franco so after the spanish civil war or during the spanish civil war franco is completely obsessed with masons and there's all kinds well, he of got blackballed didn't he well there's all <laughs> kinds of anti-masonic legislation isn't there i mean really virulent are there that many masons in Spain? He was wasn't he blackballed by his own brother? Yeah, that's the that that's the theory. You know, we don't know. And his brother, who later disappeared, on a you know in a suspicious plane crash. Um, but let's not go down that rabbit rabbit hole. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot said about you know the masons themselves love to talk about their martyrs if you like, and that they love to tell stories of their oppression and how the world has misunderstood them. Uh, and the, the key baddies in their narratives of the, are the Nazis, who did indeed ban Freemasonry in 1935, but actually much, much worse than Hitler when it came to you know clamping down on Freemasonry uh, was Franco, as you say. I mean, he'd the, the Spanish military at the time and anybody from a Catholic background in Spain at the time and imbibed very, very profound hatred and suspicion of Freemasonry. Um, you know, the, the culture wars that we saw in, in 19th century Catholic Europe, 
that led to that taxil hoax, you know, the sort of free-thinking taxil taking the mick out of the church's obsession with Freemasonry, were particularly virulent in Spain. And that Catholic anti-Masonry is really the reason why Franco was much more brutal in repressing Freemasons than were either Mussolini or Hitler, who both all the same did abolish Freemasonry. Yeah, Franco, I mean, it, it was fed information for a long time by this uh, group, uh, it's sort of secret network that uh, claimed to be, you know, from some deep throat inside the international Masonic conspiracy. And this goes on from pretty much the end of the Spanish Civil War right until the mid-60s, I think. Uh, and they're telling me, yeah, they're out to get you. And, you know, you know, when, when Truman and becomes, who were they? well, we don't really know who was behind this. I mean, it was all completely fake information. They'd been making up, you know, bulletins from Masonic Central Command internationally and, you know, letters from, from Truman or whoever it might be or Roosevelt and Churchill. Uh, making all this intelligence up to feed Franco's paranoia. And the best guess is that they were just using him, you know, using it to kind of get at uh, enemies within the regime. But Franco also set up this special tribunal to uh, repress, to put Freemasons on trial. I mean, minimum sentence, 12 years for membership of Freemasonry, or indeed of, you know, any of the Masonic supposed masonic front organizations like the rotary club or the rotary club or, yeah you speaking esperanto or any anything <laughs> right. like that made you a freemason <laughs> and in the end although you know there were at most a thousand former freemasons left in spain at the time there were eighty thousand freemasons listed and you can still visit i've visited the the kind of uh, archives in salamanca where they have all these paranoid uh, records of Franco's regime. And there's a terrible museum, isn't there, with awful waxworks in Salamanca? Yeah, that's right. Because, of course, like all of these authoritarian regimes, they claimed that they finally, finally, finally were able to s expose the secrets of Freemasonry. And so when they raided and closed down the lodges, they kind of pinched the best bits of kit from the lodges, filled up these showcase propaganda lodges with all this material, uh, with sort of dummies in cloaks and, and things like that, and said, oh, you see, you know, demonic conspiracy, that's what they're at. And they made great um, uh, visitor exhibits. It's not difficult to make Freemasonry look kind of macabre and weird yeah. because a lot of the rituals have kind of death and skulls and coffins and all of that sort of stuff in. So that's Spain. What about Italy? Because, of course, in Italy, I mean, you've written about the mafia, um, particularly in the 1970s with the P2 Lodge, um, which is this sort of ultra right-wing breakaway lodge that in, if you read any sort of slightly conspiracy theory book about 70s, 80s Italy. P2 are controlling everything. They're involved with the Vatican Bank, the death of Roberto Calvi, who's hanging. Where is he hanging from a bridge? On Blackfriars Bridge, isn't he? So he's, he, was the, he was a banker working for the Vatican. God's banker. God's banker. Wasn't he God's banker? Yes, that's right. Oh. And he was a so member of P2. Is that, is that true? <laughs> yeah. I mean, th this is where, you know, this is really where the most, perhaps not Satanist, but the most outlandish conspiracy theories actually prove to be true. The P2, P2 is a kind of limit case 
of real conspiracy. And what happened basically is this guy, Licio Gelli, who was a former fascist, basically, um, Freemasonry is in deep trouble in Italy in the post-world period because both of the dominant political parties, the Communist Party and the Christian Democrats, are both anti-Masonic. They both won't let Freemasons join them. There's an article in the new Italian constitution that bans secret societies without explicitly mentioning the Freemasons. So the Freemasons are, are worried and they really want to get back to their glory days in the, in the 19th century when they were very influential, um, in Italy. And this guy, Licio Gelli, comes along and says, look, you know, I've got loads of really important friends and I can make sure they come into Freemasonry and we can do something really, but, you know, like back in the old days, because back in the old days, all the elite Freemasons in Italy belonged to this lodge called Lodge Propaganda, which was right under the control of the Grand Master of the Grand Orient of Italy, almost his personal lodge. So they weren't bothered by ordinary Freemasons asking them for favours or, you know, selfies or whatever they did in, back in those days. And Jelly eventually took control of this, re-engineered it, and turned it into his personal kind of patronage and blackmail engine, which he, you know, he funded right-wing terrorism, he uh, laundered money for the mafia, he, uh, you know, a whole series of scandals where he brought corrupt people together. And so how did the Vatican and, and Calvi fit into all this? Well, Calvi was at the time uh, in in an unconnected development. Oh, unconnected. The church, oh, come on. <laughs> uh, the church was looking to uh, get money to fund its anti-communist activities in Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, Pope John Paul and all that. Right. And uh, so Vatican money was going in and also mafia money and all mingling around um, in these dodgy banks, which were really the centre of the P2 system. And they were the sort of financial lung of what Jelly did. They allowed him to offer, you know, offer to lend money on mates rates terms to trouble businesses in return for them joining and lending support and building the empire. I mean, a lot of Jelly's power was based on bullshit, basically. You know, there's a, there's a story, I don't know whether it's true or not, but it ought to be true, um, is a guy called Alighiero Noschese, who was the sort of Mike Yarwood of Italy of the time. <laughs> he was the great impersonator. <laughs> like you, Tom. Uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, and he, uh, was found to be a member of P2, uh, although he died before it was discovered. And the theory is that when, you know, a potential member would come in, Jelly would get this guy to call and put him on speakerphone. And Noschese would pretend to be, I don't know, <laughs> Giulio Andreotti or the interior minister or somebody really well and say, Oh, Giulio, my mate, you know, what, what can I do for you? And all this kind of well, thing. Here's a scam for us. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But if that story is not true, and it probably isn't, I'm afraid, oh, it, it gives be. some idea of how, you know, Jelly loved to boast about all his contacts because, of course, that attracted more uh, influential contacts into his network. And, and that all came apart in the late 70s, early 80s. Is that right? It was all exposed when the 
this particular bank collapsed. Calvi was found, who was handling the money, was found hanged in London. Yeah. Hanged, probably hanged by the mafia, not by the Freemasons. We still don't know. I mean, you know, it seems to be the most likely explanation that the mafia were a bit angry because all their money had gone up the spout. Um, <laughs> right. But, but yes. we don't know. We don't know. Um, but yeah, it was exp- 1981, I think it was, that the raid discovered the membership lists and lots of other compromising material in his uh, office in Arezzo in Tuscany. Should we end on a slightly more wholesome note? Because obviously we don't want to give the impression that Freemasons are actually all involved in conspiracy and people hanging in bridges and things. So I thought one of the um, sweetest things in your book was the discovery that not only had Buzz Aldrin been a Freemason, but that he, um, he'd got special permission from the Grand Lodge of Texas to set up a lodge on the moon. Yes. So yeah, yeah. Tranquility Lodge. <laughs> Tranquility Lodge on the moon. Exactly. It's still there if you care to visit, I'm sure. But the Ch- if the Chinese get to the moon, they won't want to go there, will they? Because it's illegal in exactly. China. Exactly. So- yeah, they'll have to steer well clear. But also a lot of implausible people. I mean, American basketball players and things. Shaquille O'Neal. Is- Clive Lloyd, the great West Indies cricket captain. Shaquille O'Neal, yeah. Clive Lloyd, exactly. So, And, and it does have an appeal among African-Americans, doesn't it? A surprising appeal among African-Americans. Yeah. The chapters about the States were the ones that I most enjoyed writing because despite Freemasonry's sort of enlightenment credo of racial, religious and social tolerance and so on and so on. The United States really, right since the foundation uh, of the American Republic, Freemasonry has been divided along racial lines because of racism, basically. You know, the the earliest black Freemasons, among whom was a man called Prince Hall, were prohibited from joining and founded their own tradition, now known as Prince Hall Freemasonry. And Prince Hall Freemasonry has an extraordinary record of involvement in the fight against slavery, you know, the first black troops to fight in the Civil War in 1863 were were recruited and most of their NCOs were Prince Hall Freemasons. Wow. You know, the civil rights movement is full of Freemasons. You know, the NAACP uh, was largely funded by Masonic donations. Thurgood Marshall, who, you know, led the, the sort of Brown versus the Board of Education case, uh, was a Prince Hall Freemason. Medgar Evers, uh, you know, from the Bob Dylan song, Only a Pawn in Their Game and all that. He, he was a Prince Hall Freemason. Rosa Parks was, uh, a member of a female Masonic organization and, both her father and her grandfather were Prince or Mason. So it's got a long history of involvement in civil rights and what they call uplift endeavours. Doesn't that tell you something about the nature of Masonry, that actually it's a club for people who like joining and doing things and being activists and being, you know, meeting like-minded people and, and that ultimately more than anything else more than the ritual. I mean, the rituals are fun for a lot of people. I mean, maybe there are people who believe in them, but I get the sense from your book, looking at the great span of Freemasonry, that actually it's clubbable. Uh, There's an awful lot of clubbable, public-spirited kind of people, and also people who are ambitious, who want to meet you know, people yeah. who will help them, as in you know, Italy or wherever. Well, that's the core you know, of it, that isn't sense, it? I wouldn't underestimate the power of that sense of the sacred. You know, he does tend to underestimate that, I'm afraid. <laughs> You know, as, as, as I've tried to explain, Freemason partly about death, and it's about coming to terms with death together with your mates. 
uh, in those rituals. And that's, you know, that is at the core of many uh, religions. You know, Bertrand Russell said that the core work of all religion is dealing with fear. And we, we shouldn't forget as well that Freemasonry as well as, you know, in any, however we might define Freemason in any sort of vaguely narrow sense, uh, it's not just that that's influential. Freemasonry is an organizational template. This idea of a society of men, a brotherhood of men, fraternity, linked by rituals and a certain mythology, organized in cells, but with access to a much broader network. That's Freemason. But it also very, gives its origins to the Sicilian Mafia. You know, the Sicilian Mafia very much has Masonic DNA in its origins, in its beginnings. And tons of other organizations have borrowed that Masonic template, the Ku Klux Klan, millions of other brother, you know, fraternal organizations, the Mormon Church has, you know, lots and lots of stuff. The, the more history of the early history of the Mormon Church and the early history of the history of Freemasonry are very closely intertwined. Such a fascinating way of, I mean, basically all post- 18th century history is there to some degree, isn't it? There are Masons everywhere. You mentioned Roosevelt. What was Roosevelt? 32nd degree. Yeah, that's right. So he had gone through 32 rituals or whatever. Yeah, although that is the Scottish Rite, okay, which is the most elaborate system of rituals, and there are tons of these things. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, it's fairly – these days it's fairly easy going through it. They make it easy for you to go through all those rituals. They're kind of performed for you. Still. Often in in packs. You know. But I mean, it's the the list of say. Let's let's end by just listing some of the people who've been Mason. So five kings of England, you say, mm. fourteen presidents of the United States: Robert Burns, Arthur Conan Doyle, Goethe, Mozart. We've mentioned Hayden, Sibelius, Arnold Palmer, Sugar Ray Robinson, Peter Sellers, Nat King Cole, Oliver Hardy, Henry Ford, Cecil Rhodes, Davy Crockett, Oscar Wilde, Walt Disney, Winston Churchill, Duke Ellington, and the Duke of Wellington. Amazing. It is pretty amazing. So as Dominic said, all of history is there. Um, and your book is kind of therefore not just about the Freemasons, but about the world since the early modern period. So that's the craft, how the Freemasons made the modern world. Um, John, thanks so much. It was absolutely wonderful. My pleasure. And of course, if you've listened to this and you think it was a bit too soft on Freemasonry, then that's that's proof that we're all secretly Masons. We've been lying to you all along. And if you think we've been too harsh, then you're a Mason and you know that we're not. So Everybody's a winner. Everybody will come away. Everyone comes away a little bit disappointed, which is how we like it on The Rest is History. And on that note, thank you, John. And goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hold up. 